Welcome to Not Just a Shooter 1.2. How far can LeBron James drag a bus with four flat tires? Farther than you think. Welcome to Not Just a Shooter, episode 1.2, brought to you by Gordon Fall of New York Life Insurance. I am a Sandbender, alongside Bonsi Chillips, a.k.a. Bonce Chill, a.k.a. the Wizard of West Michigan, a.k.a. the Grand Villain, also known as Alex Cook. How you doing, Alex? Pretty good. I'm, I wasn't aware that I had that many nicknames. It's pretty impressive that I'm, you could rattle all of those I'm trying to up. add at least one per show. We're going to see how long I can keep oh, this Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, I mean, well, hey, you're a pretty clever guy, so... Keep them coming. <laughs> we'll see how that well that goes. But uh, um, we're back once again to talk uh, the NBA. We are kind of in the transition period between the first and second round. We have lost four teams. We have now added a post-mortem section to the podcast. Um, so some of these playoff series will be uh, covering rather quickly here. Um, but most of those are in the West, and we are starting off in the Eastern Conference and going down the line. We're going to kick it right off with Toronto versus Washington. The Raptors lead the series at this point, three games to two. Um, this is a series that looked like uh, Toronto was going to win rather easily uh, as at when we last recorded uh, our last episode. Uh, they were up two games to nothing, but Washington gets a couple great games in a row from both Brad Beal and John Wall, finally get them kind of clicking together. Also get some Marcin Gortat going in there, uh, win two games in a row at home. Uh, to push this series to a pretty pivotal Game 5. Um, and then we get a very competitive Game 5 uh, back in Toronto before um, DeLon Wright uh, closes this game out for the Raptors and uh, kind of puts them in a relative command of the series with a 3-2 lead. And uh, while they're going back to Washington, they will get two shots to finish this off, the last one at home. So it looks like the one seed will survive, but... Uh, the Wizards have at least made it a little bit interesting. I mean, it's it's a really close series. What's interesting is that none of the scores uh, turned out to be particularly close at the end of games. I mean, game one and game five were both pretty competitive, but, you know, comfortable margins of victory in the end. Washington actually has a better efficiency margin in the series, just barely. Um, the four factors are pretty close, but, but so far the home team has won each game, and I could I could see that happening through seven. Um, I think Washington has a great great chance to take Game 6 at home. And yeah, you mentioned DeLon Wright in Game 5, stepping up for Fred Van Vliet and bench player, making huge plays down the stretch. So I guess I guess depth does matter in the playoffs after all. Yeah, and I mean, you look at this series, and obviously the home run split has mattered quite a lot. It's also mirrored the kind of uh, bench play split. Uh, Wright has played very well in all three of the Raptors' wins. He's been a little quieter in their losses. Um, for Washington, if they can get any sort of secondary scoring <laughs> outside of Beal and Wall, uh, it's really helpful for them. Uh, they got that at home. They did not get that so much in Toronto. So uh, And they also were just ice cold from the outside in Game 5. So they're they're not a great shooting team to begin with. Um, and 
when you get like Kelly Oubre going one for seven, they don't they don't have much of a chance. Um, but Demar Derozan's been awesome this series. He's finally got uh, Kyle Lowry not having a terrible postseason uh, at least so far. Uh, so it does look like the Raptors. I mean, if I, if I had to pick, I'm 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 going to assume they survive this in seven. Um, but yeah, it's going to be interesting going DeRozan, back to Washington. Yeah, DeRozan has been the best player in the series, almost thirty points per game. Raptors have been shooting well as a team from deep. Like you said, Washington shot poorly from three in game five. They haven't been as good over the whole series. And yeah, I mean, you know, they're up a game. They have one more game at home, at least, even if they lose game six. And even though Wall has been good throughout the series, especially, you know, kind of having injury issues during the latter half, feel better at home than on the road. The role players, like you said, a little bit better at home than they were on the road. And yeah, it's it's pretty even. I would say that this or the series that we're going to talk about, Cavs Pacers, is the tightest and most competitive series, um, it, which is interesting for a one versus eight series, right? But in terms of uh, you know kind of star power at the top with each backcourt, Lowry and Demar Derozan, and then Wall and Beal, there's not a ton to really differentiate those two in terms of talent, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I. <laughs> I certainly think the Wizards duo is more talented, but the the Toronto duo has fit together better this series. I mean, uh, Lowry's not having the same volume of impact as the other three guys, but he's doing what Toronto needs him to do. He's hitting 44% of his three-pointers, kind of putting up a a relatively efficient 16 per game and dishing out nine assists. He's keeping that offense running. Um, John Wall has, you know, the volume of his stats are much bigger he's averaging 27 and 12 and chipping in six boards but he's shooting 19 percent from three uh he's really propping up his efficiency by getting to the free throw line a lot and i mean that's just kind of his game though yeah but i mean 18 19 from three uh you want him to pick that up a little bit um he's been he's been good but he's had Moments where he's been strangely out of the offense, too. There was, I, I do not have the Twitter clip on hand, but somebody pulled up a clip where he was just kind of standing in the corner for an entire possession with his hands on his knees, like literally didn't move. Um, I mean, there are definitely some See, weird locker room dynamics with this Wizards team. Um, I think part of that with Wall is just fatigue. I mean, he does have to do a lot. If you have the ball in your hands every possession or virtually every possession, then you kind of just got to take some off. I mean, you see that with, uh, Russell Westbrook a little bit. He kind of just gives the ball to Paul George. He's like, here, you take care of it for now. I'm going to catch my breath. No, trust me. I'm not, I'm not going cow here, coward here, but I'm just, I, it, that is the problem when you have a team that leans so heavily on a couple guys is you are going to have those possessions where they need to take a break and Otto Porter hasn't stepped up. I mean, he's only averaging 10 points a game this series in 32 minutes. That's, that's not what they're paying him to do. Um, and that that's really putting a huge burden on Wall and Beal. It was I was shocked that Washington pulled out that game after Beal got that really awful foul call yeah. foul out with a few minutes left because I just yeah it was a, didn't like see them having the scoring that left, left but Wall Wall did yeah. at least close that out. Um, I mean, Wall's had a great series. Uh, he's assisted about thirty percent of all Wizards baskets, including ones that he wasn't on the floor. Twelve assists per game, twenty-seven points per game, um, and then yeah, Brad Beal. 
he yeah with game four i was really surprised that they managed to come away with that um and like you said Otto porter only 10 points per game he's more of a glue guy anyways but he needs to be playing better defense on derozan to kind of justify that and also i think with um Kyle Lowry, yeah, he's only scored 16 points per game, which is less than the other all-stars in the backcourts, but he has played really good defense, especially on Brad Beal at times. So I feel like that merits consideration as well. But it's just, yeah, it's an interesting series. No matter how you look at it, I think ultimately Toronto can better withstand poor performances from their stars because they have more depth. Yeah, and I think that's ultimately going to make the difference in this series, as well as the fact that Game 7 will be a uh, a home game for the Raptors. So, I don't know. I, I'm I'm just kind of expecting this one to hold the form. Uh, yeah. Both backcourts are kind of feeding off their home crowds, but, uh, yeah, the, the Raptors are a better team top to bottom. And even if the Wizards have a little bit of an edge of talent in the backcourt, maybe, uh, at least when you factor in playoff Kyle Lowry, I, I think the Raptors are making it out of this one, but not not bad for a one eight series in terms of uh, first round drama. Yeah, I mean, I think Toronto will make it through as well, but yeah, it's about as close as you can ask for in terms of a one eight series. Especially, I don't know if that's the Raptors having an overinflated regular season record. I think that's a part of it. I think part of it is that John Wall was hurt for a while, which probably hurt the Wizards' seating a little bit, but. Yeah, this is definitely competitive, and it'll be interesting to see if Game 6 or 7 comes down to the final couple of possessions because that hasn't really happened so far this series. And in that case, you know, whichever player steps up, you know, definitely a few candidates on each team uh, could, you know, turn the direction of the series, ultimately yeah. determining who makes it to the next round. Yeah, but the Wizards will be very interesting to see who gets the ball on a uh hypothetical final possession because I, I I know it's probably getting it with the Raptors but with the Wizards you can you could see John Wall taking control even though with the way they've been shooting Bradley Beal's probably the guy you want taking a last shot right now yeah I mean I'm not confident in Scott Brooks having a great plan either way no so, <laughs> one other thing too I'd like to mention right before we move on to the next series is that Ty Lawson has given some pretty decent minutes to Washington off the bench. That's I know that true. you mentioned during during the uh, preview playoff preview podcast that Washington has a terrible bench. Mike Scott's been pretty good in the front court, but they yeah in the back court it was terrible. So they signed Ty Lawson from China, just plug and play, and he hasn't been you know incredibly impactful on the stat line, but he's played um, almost I mean, given, twenty minutes. Given that setup, <laughs> it, it could be yeah. going a lot worse. He's not exactly. Exactly. Shooting the ball great, but he's at least keeping the offense moving. Uh, not he's turning. Kind the ball of like over. fast. He's kind of like fast Raymond Felton. Yeah, yeah. You know, two Carolina guys. It's it's a pretty tight comp. So Cleveland, in very dramatic fashion, took a three-two series lead over uh, the Indiana Pacers, who have hung tight, but. Uh, yeah, uh, the, there was a little bit of drama at the end of Game Five with uh, some calls that the NBA flubbed, uh, admitted the the refs flubbed afterwards. But uh, neither of them ultimately ended up mattering that much. They kind of offset each other, and LeBron's three at the end of the game uh, at least negated the whole uh, goaltending issue um, because uh, three points is more than two, and that's what Victor Oladipo was going for when LeBron had a chase down block on him. 
the ball did hit the backboard right before LeBron got his hand on it, but ball went back over to the Cavs. LeBron hits a uh, rise-up game winner over Thad Young. Uh, Cavaliers take a 3-2 lead that, uh, I, I mean, it's remarkable how LeBron is pretty much just doing this on his own. He is averaging 35-11-8 on uh, 55% shooting. Um, the next best guy on his team right now is uh, Kevin Love, averaging 12 points and 10 rebounds while shooting 30%, 32% from the field and playing pretty much unplayable defense. And nobody else on the team's averaging double figures, and they are on the verge of making the second round. Um, I'm not sure how Bron's doing it, but he's doing it. So yeah, LeBron in his in his 15th season in the NBA is playing some of the best ball of his career. He was playing the best ball of his career in the regular season, but has come up clutch in the playoffs. Big shot at the end of Game Five, and Cleveland has actually won uh, three of the four games that have been decided in this series by four points or less. Even though, for the most part, their roster, aside from LeBron, has been terrible. Kevin Love second in points. Next two highest scorers are J.R. Smith and Kyle Korver. None of the new additions that they traded for at the deadline have made much of an impact. Yeah, Uh, Rodney Hood's been bizarrely absent from, like, actually doing anything. Yep, and George Hill's been hurt. Uh some decent minutes from Clarkson interspersed in there, and Larry Nance is a better option than Tristan Thompson for sure, uh, to say the least. And honestly, at sometimes Kevin, Kevin Love definitely. Yeah, yeah, but if at Love's the same not time, he's not, yeah, he's not making much of a scoring impact. So it really is like LeBron. It's kind of a weird echo of his first in Cleveland, where you know he's pretty much single-handedly dragging a team as far as he can get. And I don't know how far that's going to be. We'll see. Whoever they get in the next round shouldn't be too difficult if they make it through. But I, I could see the Pacers uh, pulling off these next two games and, and winning it in seven. Yeah, I could see the Pacers taking this. I could say I think I could easily see their second round opponent uh, beating them. I don't know about the Wizards, but uh, if the Raptors get it through, uh, that that will be a tough road for the Cavs because they they really are just LeBron and nobody else right now. Um, Jr. Smith's been pretty awful. Uh, Kevin Love has been pretty awful. Kyle Korver's had a couple good games, but if he's not hitting threes, he is not doing a whole lot defensively. Jose Calderon is their starting point guard right now. Leaning on Jeff Green. I mean, there are a lot of names in there that you you don't want to hear in a playoff rotation. And it's kind of funny because Indiana is sort of the opposite, right? So Victor Oladipo, obviously they're kind of alpha dog his point totals have like slowly declined over the course of the series to the point where he was like two for 15 or two for 14 from the field in game five yeah but the Pacers have really picked him up they have six guys in double figures also have another with eight points a game and uh Bojan Bogdanovic hit some huge shots in game three I believe and he's been playing pretty well, decent defense on LeBron, shooting well from deep over the series. Uh, same with Miles Turner, hitting from outside, you know, kind of an impactful rim protector as well. And just kind of down the roster, Indiana has more options. But at the same time, it's LeBron. He's clearly the best player in the series. And I wouldn't bet against him to get them to the next round, even though I think game six is or game six and seven are going to be are going to be pretty close. Yeah, I, I'm kind of expecting the the Pacers just with their depth to be able to take Game Six unless LeBron has a performance like he had in Game Five. I mean, you know, the the Pacers almost 
managed to overcome that on the road with DeMontis Sabonis leading the way uh, and getting a rough game out of Oladipo. So I, I, I think there's a chance that they can they can actually pull this upset off. We'll, we'll have to see. I think one I mean, other we're, thing We're going to gonna note, get more, more LeBron ridiculousness before this is over, though. One thing to note is that neither team has scored more than 104 points, and Cleveland has had one of the worst defenses throughout the regular season. So unless they really have a turn the corner, which I kind of doubt, um, I wouldn't be shocked to see Indiana put up a big scoring performance at some point in these next two games. And I don't know if LeBron can keep pace by himself. We'll see. It's kind of hard to doubt that he can't do anything at this point. But, yeah, should be interesting. Should be interesting. It's a it's a tight series just like the other one. And uh, Yeah, Cle- yeah Cleveland also, Cleveland. just to add to that, has been kind of – living a little bit more at the line that the Pacers have, and that, that could get dangerous. I mean, LeBron has been unbelievably good at making his free throws, but uh, he's 47 for 57 in this in this series. But uh, that's relying pretty heavily on, on the whistle, and that could be difficult in Game 6 when you're going back to Indiana, and then you never know what will happen in Game 7. I LeBron gets a pretty decent whistle, though, all things considered. He does. He does. But that's that's happened so far this series, and they're, they're just barely hanging on. We've reached our first series that has ended. Um, the process continues as uh, Philadelphia took down Miami four games to one. Uh, this one was... Maybe a little bit competitive before Joel Embiid came back, and then not really that competitive. And uh, Ben Simmons was just an absolute force throughout this entire series. So the Sixers uh, take care of a Heat team that I mean they're they're, they're all right. They're not a they're not a great team, but they're not a bad team. And it kind of this was a series that made it look like the Sixers might very much compete for a, a spot in the finals and may really be the East favorite at this point. Yeah, I mean, even though Embiid missed part of the series and he was inefficient when he got back, he was really impactful on both ends, of course. 19 points per game, double-digit rebounds, really good defense around the rim, but kind of a little bit of awkwardness. And the Sixers still averaged 1.14 points per possession over the series against one of the better defenses in the league. And very egalitarian scoring. Like you said, Simmons was unreal. And yeah, they looked great. They suffered a... uh, Dwayne Wade throwback game in game two, but otherwise had, you know, pretty decent control of the series, had a really awesome offensive performance in game three. They scored 1.3 points per possession. And then in game four, it was a close game. They wound up pulling it out in Miami. And from that point, the series was pretty much over. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is one that Miami's kind of going to want to forget here. Um, first of all, the Sixers, you talk about the, the balance scoring, uh, two of their top three scorers are just their, their off-ball shooters. So J.J. Redick and Marco Bellinelli are first and third in total points um, in this series for them. Joel Embiid does, does end up averaging a little bit more, um, but didn't play in as many games. Um, so they, they really were able to keep it balanced. And then when Embiid's back on the court, he really he really changes things as a defender. And then his offensive potential is so vast that uh, even though he hasn't totally put things together on that end yet, uh, their their offense is able to keep it going. And then when he's on the bench and they can go small ball, they have been very, very good. 
Yeah, and their small ball lineups are still pretty large, right? I mean, they have a 6-10 point guard, and just the combination of size and spacing is is pretty impressive. I think they're a well-coached team, and you know they have better days ahead of them with how young Embiid and Simmons are, but two potential future MVPs, great role players uh, surrounding them. I really do think it's a well-built roster, so credit to Hinky and Brian Colangelo for that. Yeah, and let's let's mostly he, go with Hinky, given that Brian Colangelo's yeah, most, number mostly one Hinkie. pick is not actually doing anything in the series. No, and I do think Colangelo, he did bring in J.J. Redick. He did sign Bellinelli and Ilasova um, off the buyout market midseason. So nice moves at the margins there. But yeah, Simmons, MB, credit goes to Hinky Covington. He, he kind of picked out of nowhere. Great two-way player. And... Yeah, this is a pretty mismatched series, and that really speaks to how quickly the process has come along. Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll get to this more in the uh, Miami Heat postmortem section, but other than the the one fun Dwayne Wade throwback game, there there wasn't much to like about this, uh, especially just how bad Hassan Whiteside was throughout this series, uh, which is going to leave some significant question marks for them in the future. Uh, that we will get to later in the podcast. But uh, the Sixers are looking great, and the Heat, uh, a bit of a disappointing finish to to the year for them. An interesting statistical factoid is that Hassan Whiteside and Bam Adebayo played exactly the same number of minutes in that series at 77. So not even the backup center, the third string center. Kelly Olenek played a lot more than either of them. But yeah, Whiteside splitting minutes with a third stringer, big contract on the books for a little bit, not looking great. No, that's that that might be something that ends up being an anvil or around the Heat, the Heat franchise for a while, and that would that'd be unfortunate because Whiteside's got a great great amount of upside. He can be very good, but it just never seemed like he was really tuned into this series, and it was too bad given uh you know how he and Embiid went at each other in the regular season. You know, kind of hoping for some epic big man fireworks and. Uh, only one of those guys showed up to play, even though he was hurt for the first two games. Yeah, and I don't think Hassan Whiteside could talk any more trash to Joel Embiid. No, no, he's done there. And the final series in the Eastern Conference between the Boston Celtics and Milwaukee Bucks will come down to a Game 7 after the Bucks took down the Celtics 97-86 to in Game 6 tonight. We are recording after the conclusion of that game. Uh, the huge turning point in this series uh, was Joe Prunty discovering that Thon Maker not only exists, but is quite good at basketball. Um, so Maker, uh, who barely played in the first two games, um, starts seeing the court in game three, starts blocking everything, hitting threes, uh, Euro-stepping in transition. I mean, I mean, he's a really talented player. Um, so he, he makes a big difference in game three. They also get a nice bounce back from Jabari Parker in that game. Um, and as the series has gone on, it, it has gotten chippy. Um, and, uh, it, it got chippier and, um, even more competitive when Marcus Smart returned for, for Boston in game five. He brought a defensive presence after Milwaukee had won two games in a row that hadn't been there. Um, both on Chris Middleton and Giannis Antetokounmpo, um, you've got Jalen Smart or Jalen Brown stepping up for uh, for Boston on the other end of the floor. Um, but tonight in Game Six, uh, 
the Bucks finally put Thonmaker in the starting lineup. Um, and eventually, uh, Milwaukee's kind of been relying on going defense to offense this whole series. Neither of this, these teams are explosive offensive outfit, outfits. And what Thon can bring as a shot blocker and a guy who gets out in transition and also a guy who can occasionally can a three-pointer in the half court has just uh, totally changed the outlook of this series to the point where uh, the two-seed is in very, very serious danger of going down. Yeah, honestly, I'm fine to talk about Thon Maker for this entire uh, segment about this series. He, if you haven't seen his high school mixtapes, look them up on YouTube. They're amazing. A seven footer who can shoot, jump, dribble. Um, truly one of the unicorns of the modern game, so to yeah, speak. Yeah, and he was super skinny back then, too. So it just looks wild to see this guy being that good at basketball. Yeah, pretty crazy backstory, too. Uh, refugee from South Sudan, went to Australia now plays for the Bucks. didn't go to college. People were very, very split about his draft prospects, his outlook as a, as a player because his level of competition before getting to the NBA was so low. So very raw player, but I think game three was a uh, revelation of sorts. He led the team in plus or minus in that game and really made a difference on both ends, like you said. And yeah, the thing that I can't keep like focusing on um, with the Bucks is just thinking about how much better they're going to be if they get a new coach. But we'll see if if what they have right now is good enough to get them. Yeah, they, uh, see, game they seven seem to win. be held back because it's, it's not like Thon Maker didn't make an impact last year too. I mean, he, he he started coming on as a player who looked like he was going to be a huge part of their future, and for him to be on the bench given the way that the series was going, uh, just didn't make a whole lot of sense. So. And we're still uh, very skeptical of Joe Prunty and whether he's even a real person. But uh, he did at least manage to get Thonmaker out on the court. And that uh, has sent the series to seven. Uh, could shake up the Eastern Conference a little bit. And, I mean, Milwaukee's a team that, you know, Boston, Boston I don't think will get past the second round if they get there. You're leaning on Terry Rozier as kind of your, your main scorer at this point. And that has been an up-and-down experience for the Celtics. Um Al Horford's your best player, and he's kind of, you know, he's a really good role player. Um, and that's, that's I'm, I don't think is going to be enough to get them out of the second round. The Bucks, though, I mean, if they, now that they've, you know, stumbled into the right lineup, I can see them making a little bit of noise. Yeah, I still think that their their tactics are generally pretty bad in terms of offensive sets and, you know, defenses, how they pressure the ball, how they, you know, gamble for steals, I think would be really bad against Philly. That's true. But Jonas and Chris Middleton have been probably the two best players in the series, both scoring around 25 points per game at least, which is higher than anybody on the Celtics. Jalen Brown has been really good for the Celtics. He had a couple games of 30 points, if I'm remembering correctly. And there's a bright future there. There's a bright future with Tatum. It will be interesting to see if they win Game 7 because it is at home. And I don't believe Milwaukee has won any road games so far this series, although they did take Game 1 to overtime, and Game 5 was a defensive slugfest. That was pretty close. But should be interesting. By the time we get to the next podcast, the series will have long have been over. So it's kind of hard to project who would you know match up against the Celtics and kind of preview that series a little bit. But... I'm feeling pretty confident, or match up with the Sixers, rather. 
I'm feeling pretty confident that the Sixers will make it to the conference finals, no matter which team advances from this one. Yeah, no, I'm I'm definitely with you on that. That will be. Uh, I don't know if it'll necessarily be a cakewalk for Philly, but it they're going to have a relatively smooth path to the conference finals here. Yep, I like their chances. You're an MGO blog reader, so you've probably already met Gordon Fall. Yes, the guy who comes to all of our events. Yes, he is named after Gordy Howe. Yes, Wayne Gretzky knows this and says hi, Gordy, whenever they cross paths. Seriously. Gordon has stepped up to sponsor this podcast, so we should tell you what he does. Gordon is a licensed agent with New York Life Insurance. He specializes in holistic policies for individuals with long-term goals and short-term financial situations. He would like to expand that roster now in anticipation of opening his own shop next year and would rather work with fellow lifelong Michigan obsessives. If you're starting out in your career, growing your family, or beginning to think about retirement, you should talk to Gordon about crafting a plan for you. Visit gordonfall.com to start the conversation. That's G-O-R-D-O-N fall.com. I'm paper chase, motivated. I ain't the one to play with these cats. Instead of plays, you can have it your way, but I'd rather parlay. Just smoke OG and get cabbage all day to wait. Short play causes your main thing to say. You style so splendid. You got your business. You arousing my interest. You sharper than a sugar. You know the way you go, huh? Game. Now I'm talking about. That's so for hustlers. We black ink for life productions. Trying to find our spots amongst the rockers and beat. Suck a free fleet, chumps and busters, man. Get them, hustle, get them, hustle, get them, hustle. And you're trying to get them. All right, before we jump into the Western Conference, I am getting my revenge on Alex for his uh, pop nickname quiz on me last week from Basketball Reference. Um, so, Alex, I have uh, I have taken a look at Western Conference teams. We are keeping this to uh, players who are in the top five playoff scores for their teams this year, just so it is not completely impossible. But if you missed it last week, uh, Basketball Reference keeps some rather obscure nicknames on their uh, on their player pages. Some of them, uh, as as you may discover in in this quiz, the players will de- deny that <laughs> these are even one of their nicknames. Um, but they're on there for whatever reason. Uh, we're going to get into it. Some of these are fun. Um, so the first one up for Alex is, who do you think is nicknamed Switchblade? Switchblade. Hmm. And for the record, I, I just hope that I get one of these right. <laughs> I think I, I, think, I, I think I went 0 for 5 last week, unless we want to give me a, a like spiritual J.R. Smith, Dion Waiters uh, half point there. Um, I mean, that was so, kind of a cheap question, so maybe we can say that you're 0 for 4. Um, Switchblade, I'm going to guess Andre Iguodala. It is actually Trevor Ariza, who, uh, when he was asked okay. on the radio um, whether this is an actual accepted nickname that he would use, he went, what? No, what does that mean? So uh, I'm guessing that Switchblade was uh, not one he gave himself. Um, I'm, I'm like still it. I'm still not sure how it actually came about, but uh, don't call Trevor Ariza Switchblade. He will not appreciate it. Um, the next he does one, love making those State Farm ads, though. He does. So, uh, and considering how I feel about those State Farm ads, um, maybe you should call him Switchblade. Maybe maybe get back at him for those. Um, all right, the next one up 
is uh, one that I would be a little worried about if I didn't know how the nickname came about, but it is The Servant. It's Kevin Durant. Yep. I, you know the story. Um, so, yeah. Uh, it's a lame I, sh- I shouldn't have asked a Thunder fan. That was that was my mistake. I was actually thinking about leaving that out for that reason, but it's just too good a story, um, which is uh, after the All-Star game in 2014, uh, Durant sits down with an interview with Bill Simmons of uh, the late Grantland at the time. And Simmons brings up the amazing nickname, the Slim Reaper, um, which is one of another of Kevin Durant's nicknames, but one that he personally does not like. And uh, when Simmons asked if Durant was okay with that, he said, you can call me the servant because he just likes to serve everybody. His teammates, the ushers at the game, the fans, just serve everybody. Um, if anybody else decided to bestow the nickname the servant, it would be deeply problematic. But uh, since Durant did it to himself... Um, I mean, no one's gonna call him that because it's a terrible nickname. Uh, he's the got Slim he's, Reaper. He's got the, the Slim, Slim Reaper. Reaper is such a good nickname. Durantula is out there. That one was oh, good too. I, I mean, I love Kevin Durant. Terrible taste in nicknames. Terrible, terrible, terrible taste in nicknames. I don't. You, uh, yeah, you might have some more conflicted feelings over to Durant, but uh, not not conflicted. Just yeah. Well, you've already beaten my score from last week, but we are going to move on to the third one. I'm expecting this one to be a little bit tougher. This nickname is Big Truck. Big Truck. Since you said that it's tougher, I'm guessing it's a player that's not that big, which. You're on the you right track. That, that doesn't narrow the pool no. that much, but you're on the right I guess track. Nurkic. I guess Nurkic. That's a big guy, but yeah, I have no idea. It's Rudy Gay. And the only thing I can find that explains this nickname is when you search for it on Google, you come up with an eBay hit where he signed one of his cards from Yukon and inscribed it Big Truck. So I guess this must have been a college nickname somehow, but he was a skinny dude at UConn. So maybe it was ironic. I yeah, I'm totally lost by that one. But I I had a feeling that would at least stump you because uh, there's no way anybody's looking at at Rudy Gay and thinking big truck. Yeah, no chance. All right, number four on the nickname quiz: the yoga instructor. The yoga instructor, man. Ricky Rubio? Uh, kind of on the right track. Uh, Rajon Rondo. Um, this was a nickname that uh, Steve Smith of NBA TV gave him uh, because of his ability to contort his body in traffic. The weird part about this is Steve Smith gave him this nickname while he was playing in Sacramento and preceded it by oh, saying no. Rondo is balling out in Sacramento. Um, so oh, clearly no. uh, this... This uh, incidentally happened after a uh, highlight play he made against the Pistons. So, uh, yeah, there's our depressing Detroit Pistons tie-in of the show. Um, Rajon sure Rondo had his one good Kings moment against the Pistons and earned a nickname for it. Um, so there's that. Um, the last nickname on this list, I'm worried you'll get it because it is such a great stylistic fit. Um, but there's also a good story to go along with it, so I actually don't mind if you do. It is the Drunken Dribbler. Corey Brewer. Yes. Um, now, the fun part that is about a good the story... One. That is one of my favorite ones in the entire NBA. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it just so perfectly describes uh, Corey Brewer's style because if he has the basketball in his hands, you are definitely afraid that something terrible is going to happen. Um, and this also led to uh, Billy Donovan. Um, he was asked about Corey Brewer's drunken uh, dribbler nickname because obviously Billy Donovan also had him at Florida. And apparently Brewer was also known at UF as Giraffe on Roller Skates. That did not make his <laughs> basketball reference page, but that's also pretty good. A little wordy. I like the drunken dribbler rolls off the tongue better. Um, oh, absolutely. But uh there's your there's your nickname quiz for this week. Alex goes two for five, so uh yeah, you you beat your goal. Uh you definitely beat me. I'm giving myself half a point for J.R. Smith from last week. Maybe we can contact the basketball reference mods to get that uh, giraffe on roller skates nickname onto Corey Brewer's page. I assume one of us could probably just like edit it on there. It seems like it, it isn't that hard to get something onto the basketball reference nickname page, given what all, all well, makes it. For our listeners, if one of you could do that, we would greatly appreciate that. Yes, giraffe on roller skates, Corey Brewer's page. We move into the Western Conference where uh, things are a bit more settled than in the East, uh, starting with the the 1-8, um, which has gone much more like you'd expect a 1-8 to go. Um, the Rockets uh, used a 50-point third quarter in Game 4 to just absolutely pull away from the, the Timberwolves in, in ridiculous uh, efficient fashion and then did something pretty similar in game five, uh, winning the third quarter, 30 to 15. Um, so Minnesota did get, uh, oddly a Derrick Rose game, uh, with a, with a little bit of Jimmy Butler action in there for their, uh, first playoff home game in, in 14 years to take game three from the one seed. But otherwise this was the Rockets pretty much just running them over. Yeah. Gentlemen sweep for the Rockets and Derrick Rose had a good series, which, validates Tom Thibodeau uh, signing him and giving him minutes. I know a lot of people questioned that, but Houston 1.17 points per possession over the series makes sense. The Wolves defense was pretty terrible throughout the year and kind of played out to form in this series. Yeah, I would add especially that for, with, uh, for, for as good as uh, Derrick Rose was on offense of the series, he was not so good on defense. Yes, and Jeff Teague is not good at defense. It just, the guys who they were playing in the backcourt couldn't I mean, Jamal Crawford played. It, they had no hope of containing Harden and Paul. Yeah, didn't Carl Anthony that well Towns isn't exactly a great defensive player either. So this, I mean, it's weird to see no. a, a Thibodeau team that is uh, this bad defensively. Yeah, Houston didn't shoot that well from three, just a shade under 35%. Almost exactly half of their field goal attempts were three-point attempts, just barely under. So that's pretty interesting. That's been their MO, really, for the last couple seasons. Got more extreme this year. But Harden, great series, had one weirdly rough game in there somewhere in a game that I think they won. might have been game two. But like you said, it was honestly a pretty close series. Minnesota almost stole game one. They did get game three. So they're down 2-1 at home. It's a close game through the first half of game four. And then they Houston wound up scoring on a point third quarter. <laughs> Houston wound up scoring on eleven straight possessions in that third quarter to go up twenty points. I mean, a couple of those were misses, offensive rebounds, and kicked out for three. But eleven trips down the floor 
scored. And that's what they could do. They shoot a lot of threes. They play at a high tempo. They generate a lot of possessions. And for the most part in the series, they were like fairly average within that sample by their standards. But they get hot for a little bit, and, man, they're going to blow pretty much anybody out of the water. Yeah, and, I mean, the three-point shooting got a lot of attention over the last couple games, but the other thing that really stands out is that Clint Capella had had a fantastic stretch. Uh, He gets 17 rebounds in Game 4, 15 in Game 5. He also drops 26 points in Game 5 to lead all scorers um, and close everything out. But he has been... uh, a real rim protector, a huge factor on the offensive glass, a guy who's keeping possessions alive for him. And when you're giving Houston extra possessions, uh, it is very, very difficult to keep up with them. Uh, I mean, they were winning games in the series when they weren't shooting that well. And when they were shooting well, they were putting up the first 50-point quarter since the 62 L.A. Lakers. So, um, yeah. Or were they the Minnesota Lakers at that time? I don't know. I think that was that at, I think that was after they had moved from LA, but apparently oh, okay. they lost that game, which I find rather hard to believe. But they uh, they must have given up the other team quite a cushion. That's um, wild. Yeah, Capella within his role, I think he had a better series than Towns. I really do. And kind of the thing with Houston entering the season is like, okay, they have two stars, Paul and Harden. Let's see how that works. I don't know if you can quite classify Capella as that, but I feel like there are few centers I would rather have with the style that Houston plays in the NBA. Doesn't mess around with post-ups, has really good hands and a good feel to make himself available around the rim for you know guys that could definitely get him the ball. And great two-way player, great around the rim, can switch on defense. He really unlocks that for them. And yeah, looking... You know, a little bit ahead uh, against the Jazz or the Thunder, he would have a a tough matchup with a you know big physical center. But then against the Warriors, he might be you know the the biggest player on the floor in certain lineups, and he can make himself assertive on that. And I think his emergence has been a really underrated story for the NBA as a whole. Yeah, I mean, he is he definitely fits kind of what you want in a modern center, and he's young. He's on a really good team. He's he's maybe the the key player on that team in terms of, I mean, you know what generally what you're going to get out of James Harden and Chris Paul. Um, but if you can get Capella to play uh, at a consistently high level along with those two, I, I mean, the Rockets do have a, a ridiculously absurd record uh, when those three guys are all healthy and playing together. Uh, there's good reason yeah. for it. You you give Chris Paul and James Harden extra possessions, and it's it's just lethal. I believe that uh, including their loss in Game Three of this series, when Paul Harden and Capella all play, the Rockets have had three total losses on the season. Yes, and I believe they're now up to like 48 wins or something like that. Something around there, and yeah, it's I like mean, forty and two or forty-four and two, somewhere in that range, heading into the playoffs. We mentioned it in one of these earlier podcasts, and actually had it, you know, written down in our notes beforehand. But uh, yeah, um, the Rockets have. Uh, I mean, that, that trio. I'm I'm sticking with thinking that they're gonna be the team to come out of the West. I did I did not see anything in this first round to change that opinion. I think one thing that's noteworthy, too, that probably will get lost in the shuffle a little bit is, aside from the second half of Game 3, Houston's defense was excellent in this series, and Minnesota had the fourth-best offense in the league, very efficient, a ton of options. 
Houston neutralized Carl Anthony Towns well. He they harassed you know Wiggins didn't have a great series. The guards were rather inefficient. Um, some decent performances off the bench there, but yeah, ultimately the Rockets' defense was what probably impressed me the most this series, even more than their fifty-point quarter. And you know they they grinded out some uh, you know key key wins. And yeah, it, I mean in terms of holding the Timberwolves down on that end of the floor, even if the three isn't falling, even if Paul or Harden have an off night. Can't really survive if both do, but that rarely happens anyways. So dangerous team for sure moving forward. All right, and uh, if you're listening to this, uh, you will probably be listening to this heading into uh, tonight's Game 6 between Utah and Oklahoma City where the Jazz have taken a 3-2 lead uh, against a Thunder team that... uh, Almost lost this uh, and looked like they were going to lose it in very embarrassing fashion um, until pulling off uh, what ended up being tied for the third largest comeback in playoff history in Game 5. Uh, Russell Westbrook gets to quiet the uh, the growing number of haters for uh, at least a, a couple nights here uh, with an absolutely phenomenal performance. Um, gets just enough from Paul George, including kind of a chase down block at the end uh, to seal this game. And Oklahoma City actually wins it running away a little bit, 107-99. Um, but they were within a, a, a historic comeback of getting eliminated. Um, they still got a win two in a row. Uh, the Jazz have been looking quite good. Do you think that they can survive this somehow? Um, I'm not expecting it, frankly. I think the Thunder in Game 5, they were down 25 points in the third quarter, went on a 32-7 run. Paul George and uh, Russell Westbrook wound up combining for 79 points in that game. And I think an underrated part of that comeback was Rudy Gobert picking up a phantom foul and being saddled to the bench for most of the second half. Yes. And he had foul Uh, trouble throughout the game too. He only only ends up playing 30 minutes and that foul played a a big part in sending him to the bench. Yeah. I think just over the course of the series, the jazz have looked better. The thunder clearly have a lot of star potential. Uh, George in particular has had a really good series. Russ, every time he plays poorly or if the thunder lose his entire career legacy persona as it's a player. on the line every game it's ridiculous and it just gets endlessly relitigated and his flaws just i mean i mean the he, thing is, he is, is a flawed he, player but he is also a phenomenally good player the thing the thing that i get is whenever somebody complains about russ for whatever reason you know oh he takes bad shots oh he's a ball hog oh he plays out of control it's you know what to all of those criticisms i agree to one uh degree or another but at the end of the day, he is a really special player. I think, I don't know if, except for LeBron maybe, if any other player receives this kind of scrutiny on a game-to-game level, but people forget that he had a positive on-off mark last season in the playoffs against Houston. They got drummed out fairly quickly because the rest of the team was just terrible, and he's had some issues adjusting to the players around him this year, but I think a bigger reason than Russ not 
you know, having the best game or he did kind of take himself out of game four, which was really bad. They, they wound up getting beaten pretty solidly by Utah on the road. And yeah, the, he the got whole team kind of lost Romney. that one. Yeah. Russell, Russell got trash talked by Mitt Romney. So I don't, yeah, I'm sorry. That must've been a low moment that. for you. Yeah. I mean, he did respond with 45, 15 and seven in the next game. So I think that kind of makes up for it, but <laughs> True. yeah, it's, that's that's tough. I'm sure I'm sure he's got uh, ripped by some of his friends for that one. But I think a bigger reason why the Thunder are in position to lose this series is Carmelo Anthony, and I, I won't complain yeah, about. Let's him. let's get into just how he's awful he's been. Bad, really I'm, bad. I mean, the, mo- the most he really. scored in a game this series is 17 points, and he needed 18 shots to get there. Um, it is probably not a coincidence that Oklahoma City wins this game, and it is the first game where he plays under 30 minutes. Um, you know, Jaron Grant's just a, a better option for them right now. Um, Anthony is a god-awful defender at this point. I mean, you know, Utah will just look to put him in the pick-and-roll pretty much any time that he's on the court, and... They would they will get a mismatch somewhere or be able to attack him. And on the other end, he's he's been a non-entity. I mean, we were we were joking around on Twitter and throwing out the names of people who have stopped him. But I mean, Derek Favors is very much winning that matchup. Carmelo Anthony is also losing one-on-one matchups to guys like Joe Ingles and Royce O'Neal. Um, and the problem with it is uh, he is not somebody who's going to be amenable to going to the bench. So what do you do with that guy? I don't know. Um, I saw somebody on Twitter call him a fatter version of Mike's Mike Scott, and I saw somebody <laughs> else call him Bo Spades with a headband. I think the latter is good, but they both pretty much sum it up. I mean, he's just really not good, and he's a type of um, you know flaw in a defense, especially a team with some good defensive pieces like the Thunder. They they just pick at over and over and over again. He has more shots than points in this series, and. I think Jeremy Grant's been a pretty positive player, better than I expected for sure. OKC has really cut down the rotation to the point where Paul George, Westbrook, and Steven Adams barely left the floor in Game 5. Jeremy Grant, Carmelo Anthony, Corey Brewer, and Alex Abrinas all kind of played about roughly half of the available minutes, and then there were you know spot minutes from Patterson, Hustis, and Ray Felton, but... They've had to kind I of cut this down idea. to a seven-man rotation just because of how bad their yeah. their depth is, too, because Patterson has been a huge disappointment as a guy that they were hoping could at least function as a small ball center in this series for some stretches and has not been able to hit any shots or provide enough defense to really do that. And I think with Anthony, going back to that real quick, is in an ideal world, you could give about half of his minutes to Grant, have Grant play more of a starter minute level share of minutes uh, than I guess where he's at, where he's just in a job share role, but better on both ends, you know, playing, complimenting uh, Westbrook and George, two pretty ball dominant ISO style players on offense, way better on defense, way better on the glass. And Carmelo, we'll probably discuss this more in depth during the Thunder's eventual postmortem, which could happen sooner rather than later frankly i I don't think they're going to win game six in in utah they weren't really very close in game three or four in utah and no it's it's hard to see them you know winning two in a row against this team the jazz the jazz have been great the jazz have been 
better than the sum of their parts, I think Donovan Mitchell really leapt onto the scene as a, as a star, a legitimate star in his rookie season. He's their best player, which, yeah, every every time, every time he comes up, it's just you think <laughs> about what could have been. But. Yeah, I mean, you know, also, I, I don't know what happened after he left Mizzou and then was around for a while and then, you know, kind of gone for a while on the resurface. But Quinn Snyder is a really darn good coach. I mean, that that, yeah, that, that think, guy is, is doing a lot of work in Utah. He, he has done an impressive job of molding that roster. He's done an impressive job of getting these pieces to fit together. I mean, you know, the city of Oklahoma is going to freaking hate Joe Ingles, and most of them probably didn't know who he was <laughs> until this week. Um, yeah, I don't think Doc, Doc Rivers knows who he is either, even though he played on his Clippers team for a yeah. little bit. That guy but, could have been useful, as it yeah, turns out. Yeah, who would have guessed? You know, 44% for three, and Oklahoma City's pick-and-roll coverages seem to just allow to help off. So that's pretty cool. I definitely think Quinn Snyder has outcoached Billy Donovan, and I've been really impressed with the Jazz. They were top five in the league in efficiency margins, so you knew that they were good. They really maximize their talent on both ends, you know, with their defensive scheme, keeping Gobert around the rim, having him drop on pick and rolls. Really a strong deterrent. It's no coincidence that Russell can actually play like his best self when Gobert is on the bench and he's not afraid of the best yeah. rim protector in the NBA. That really turned game five um, around. It really did. And, yeah, I don't know if uh, their best strategy is just to try to provoke him into fouls, but – I. There are worse ideas. It sounds like it. Scheme up a, a creative offense it. overnight. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, mean it's it's been ugly otherwise, and I, you know, other than uh, you know, I don't think Billy Donovan's going to have the guts to do the extreme thing, which would just be to bench Mellow. Um, I don't think and, so. And the problem is that they really don't have the depth to do it either. Like, even if you wanted to do it, who else are you bringing in when when Jeremy Grant gets tired? Um, yeah, you really can't. You you, you got to put Melo out there at some point, and he is just a shell of his former self. Um, so, yeah. and that's also, I mean, they're they're playing, they're still starting Corey Brewer too, and uh, he's also uh, showing his age quite a bit. So, yeah. I mean, both both and those guys were big negatives at, in, in the in game five, and were saved by the bench. Yeah, I mean, I think. You look at it from a very big picture view. Oklahoma City came into the ser- uh, season thinking, okay, we have a big three. We're going to build a very defensive-minded roster. Roberson gets hurt. Carmelo Anthony is a liability in this starting lineup. And until we got to the second half of Game 5, I would have said that only one of the Thunder's big three were winning their individual matchup. And even that was pretty close because I think to that point, before Russell went nuts to save the Thunder season, um, Rubio had outplayed him. Rubio played well in Utah. Had a tri- I believe he had a triple double. I don't have the did. box score right. Ricky, Ricky Rubio had a triple double. He also went absolutely bananas for beyond the arc. Yeah, and then of course Derek Favors versus Carmelo Anthony. I mean, that's one that the Thunder. Based on Carmelo's play throughout this season, it's kind of like, yeah, maybe it's not going to happen, but it's still so stark to see, you know, a guy that was an all-NBA player for a good part of his career, it's, it seems like he is pretty much done for in terms of being a relevant... Yeah, I mean, he pop. was a guy who, like, 
his game was never going to age that well unless he changed it. Even his spot up shooting has been bad, though. You're kind of just thinking, okay, you're do- a dude. Yeah, but he was never keep- a great spot up three point sure. shooter, and That's true. and spotting up from eighteen feet is not ideal in today's game. Even if you're pretty good at it, I mean, Toronto's improved just by forcing Demar Derozan to stretch out his range three or four feet. I mean, I really like it when the Thunder, you know, spend half of a possession trying to cram it to uh, Anthony in the mid post, <laughs> his back to the basket. That's really good. I, I love that. It's gorgeous basketball. And, yeah, I love the one ball screen and three dudes stand around offense. That's really cool too. And I, you know, it's hard not to get the feeling that between Scott Brooks and Billy Donovan, you wonder how much of that is Russell. You wonder how much of it is just unimaginative coaching. But either way, it's like it's clearly not as good as it could be. And you watch some of these other teams. Yeah, no, like, the Thunder the have Rockets. been held back by by their coaching. I, I don't think there's any question about that. Uh, you know, because we we've seen Scott Brooks move on to another another NBA team, and it it has not he has received the same level of criticism in Washington, and I believe rightly so for how he often mishandles his rotations and doesn't really have much of an offensive scheme to speak of. Um, yeah. And the and same one thing other seems to be problem, happening with Donovan. One other problem that's been kind of a consistent through Westbrook's career is not having good shooting from the role players in general. And some of Oklahoma City's role players are shooting well in the series. Abrinas has been pretty good. He's knocked in a couple threes. So has Ray Felton. Paul George definitely taking the lion's share of those. But spacing has always been an issue. And when you have a guy that you know, likes to take on a large share of possessions. Sometimes he, you know, drives and kicks to open shooters and they just can't knock him down. Yeah, so. I mean, they're, they're playing three sometimes. I mean, if you count Westbrook, who's not a great outside shooter, they're sometimes playing no, four non-shooters not. on the court at the same time. That's their starting lineup is, I mean, with Anthony Adams, Brewer, and Westbrook in there, you've got only one guy yep. who can even hit, 35% of his threes, and then you're just hoping Paul George is able to hit a lot of contested long-range shots. Yep. Um, and I mean, Brewer has hit half of his threes in the series, but only on 10 attempts, right? So if some fool's gold there, he's yeah, not actually yeah, he's, good. He's shooter. not actually good. And th- those are yeah. shots that you know Utah is letting him just be screamingly wide open for those. Yep. Whereas the Thunder leave Utah's good shooters screamingly wide open. So yeah, they've big been doing that with there. Joe Ingles, uh, who makes forty six percent of his threes now. Um, so yep. yeah, that's that has not gone so well for the Thunder. That they, they've kind of had some odd strategies on both ends. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know really what you do with an offense that is trying to feature Carmelo Anthony, but on defense. Uh, Constantly blitzing the ball handler and the pick and roll when it's Ricky Rubio and he's not. I mean, just just let the guy shoot threes. I know it burned you in one game, but that that game was unusual for a reason. Um, but they they keep like just going all out at the ball handler. Rubio is such a good passer. He's tall. He is he has such great vision. He can see across court, and they're letting him. They're not even making him do skip passes. He's just you know flipping the ball over fifteen feet to Ingles for a wide open three. Yeah, I guess to kind of conclude this series a little bit, um, I I could talk about the Thunder for a while. I, I know you can probably when, when they get eliminated, there it's probably going to be a better time to hash out bigger picture issues. But it's kind of a flawed team. The Jazz fit together pretty well, and yeah, I mean if Favors 
Jay Crowder had a good game five and a losing effort. Rubio has played well. Ingles, Ingles has been great. If if the Jazz's role players are playing that well compared to the Thunder, you, you're going to need Paul George and Russell Westbrook to to combine for at least sixty or seventy points again to have much of a chance yeah. on the road, especially. Yeah, I think uh, barring. Rudy Gobert and Derek Favors both getting into foul trouble in maybe both games going forward, uh, like what happened in Game Five. I I I think uh, the Jazz end up emerging from this one. They they're just I mean as we've been saying a much more complete team and a better coach team and uh, especially if Donovan Mitchell's on uh, they they sometimes have a guy who's playing on as high a level as anybody else in this series too. So uh, if, if they get Mitchell going, they can kind of win this going away and, you know, maybe it takes seven, but uh, I definitely like the jazz in this one. Yeah. And Mitchell, he has had a great series. He is a good outside shooter, hasn't shot it especially well from three, but I'm just always amazed by his ability to get to the rim at six, two and score over larger players. I know it's his wingspan, but also really good with using his body and uh, uh, that ridiculous, you know, his move. length. Yeah. <laughs> like he's, absurd. he's, he's quite a special player. So yeah, I'll definitely enjoy watching him moving forward to a certain degree, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. While trying not to think about certain things. Yeah, definitely not. All right, we're going to cover the next two series in one go here because uh, they're both over. They both weren't very close. Uh, Golden State does the uh, the gentleman sweep of the, the San Antonio Spurs. Uh, they give them a, a win one for pop. I, uh, to be honest, completely napped through that game. And then uh, Golden State won game five, to be honest. I didn't watch that one either. Um, in a much more interesting series, it, in terms of at least the uh, the ramifications, um, New Orleans uh, swept Portland. Um, now, the, the Western Conference was close, but this, was, uh, this is the three seed getting swept by a team that is missing one of its top two players in, in Boogie Cousins, although uh, now you start to get to the discussion, um, you know, we're, we're going to get into previewing New Orleans versus Golden State here because that's, that's really going to be uh, what matters coming up. But you also got to wonder if, uh, if the Pellies are maybe better off without Boogie Cousins, at least at what he's going to cost. Yeah, I mean, that's a discussion for another day. I think just post-mortems, uh, section that we're going to have in future episodes will be good for kind of hashing out the long-term implications of certain things but pelicans have been improved without cousins there's no doubt about it they were good and challenging in their own way but his absence has kind of unlocked things for anthony davis to play pretty much exclusively at the five and a lot of the time rover as the five at least uh you know against portland where he's there's seemingly always been somebody on the court that he can kind of match up kind with of and range off, off of. of. Yeah. Um, yeah. So and they, they use them well in that regard. Yeah. No, they, they're they well coached. Al, Alvin Gentry is one of the, the best in the game, and I thought he did a fantastic job with Anthony Davis in this series. They looked great. I mean, Portland was a three seed. They had a good season, and New Orleans really took it to them. Scored more points in each game, went from 97 in the first game, which was kind of a defensive slugfest a little bit, to scoring 131 
in the last game of that series. And Drew Holiday was fantastic. Yeah, uh, phenomenal on both ends. Yep, 28 points per game, 40% from three great defense on Lillard and McCollum, who wound up over the course of the series scoring 175 points on 163 shot equivalents. So just barely over one per shot equivalent, which is but most way of that worse being than on Lillard, from who had a, a really rough series um, by anybody's standard, but especially his standard, and especially with how much the Trailblazers needed him to. Uh, come up big. Um, he shoots 30% from three, and they can't even come away with a single win in this one. So now we're looking ahead. And at, they really like, only had one. They really only had one great offensive game. Portland did, and it was in the last game, which New Orleans was just on fire. Both uh, Davis and Holiday, I believe. Davis got close to 50 points, 47, I believe, mm-hmm. and. Yeah, that game four was mostly McCollum. So Dame Lillard missing in action, and we're going to get to this shortly, but Portland is kind of at a crossroads, sort of an existential crisis. Yeah, they're, The other series, Warriors-Spurs. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the, but the other series, Warriors-Spurs, I missed the Spurs win as well. I was actually outside enjoying the weather, had to get away from the screens for a little bit. I mean, we, we all have better things Michigan to do than watch this series. Let's let's be honest. Uh, the, oh, the yeah. Spurs. It with, was ugly. The Spurs without their best player is is not a pretty sight to see at this point. I mean, they 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 needed Kawhi to even have a hope. Instead, this is a team that was trying to keep up with Golden State while running their offense through Lamarcus Aldridge, who did an admirable job, but he's you know. A mid-range guy for the most part, and you're not gonna you're not gonna beat Golden State when your best player attempts five threes in the entire series. That's that's just how it goes. I believe it was a guy from Deadspin, maybe Albert Bernego, who after Game Two described Lamarcus Aldridge, and Lamarcus Aldridge had a great game in Game Two, but he's like he's the screaming dinosaur slowly sinking into a tar pit and he's just going to be forgotten very, very soon. And I think that pretty much sums it up well. He had 24-9 in the series on average, which is good. But the Spurs as a whole, less than a point per possession, poor effective field goal percentage. And even though the Warriors' offense wasn't as good as it could have been, part of the credit goes to the Spurs' defense there. It just it just wasn't really close. And, and this is the Warriors without Steph Curry. Almost 30 points. Yes, yes, which is also a very key subplot to the upcoming series and maybe one of the main storylines, honestly. But in the series against the Spurs, Durant, 28 points, 8.5 rebounds, 5 assists per game. Klay Thompson averaging 22.6 points and shooting over 50% from three. Warriors really took it to the Spurs on the offensive glass. Yeah, exactly right. He is great in his role and it would be interesting to see if he ever see I kind of compare him to Devin Booker a little bit even though their series or their uh careers are in like absolutely polar uh like the two polar ends of what they could have been because Devin Booker's kind of been thrust into like a go create and score in a Kobe role for the worst team in the NBA yeah. and Clay Thompson just gets to play defense sit there i mean he runs around a lot of screens but gets so many open looks from three and such a great shooter and yeah draymond kind of not so great over the course of the series on offense durant was not great shooting from three the warriors as a whole really weren't either and they might have to uh 
to shore things up uh, before they face the Pelicans because it will be a major step up in competition. Yeah, let's dive right into that because, I mean, for the Warriors, you look at, I mean, even just like the way they they played this series, you've got JaVale McGee starting all five games. You've got David West playing major minutes coming off the bench. you got Kevon Lonnie, Lonnie uh, getting major minutes. I mean, like, and meanwhile, Jordan Bell, like, barely, barely sees the court. He gets just 11 minutes in this entire series. But when you're looking ahead of the Pelicans and you're and you're looking at trying to match up with Anthony Davis, um, I mean, you've got Draymond Green where you can play small ball with him, but you're probably going to want another mobile big man who is able to keep up with Anthony Davis at least a little bit. And I don't think that's going to be JaVale McGee. It's definitely not David West. So, I, I mean, I think it's going to be interesting to see if Bell gets, like, taken out, you know, out from under wraps here, this series. Yeah, I think part of why McGee and West played so much was just um, the matchup against the Spurs have more of a traditional big on the floor at all times. With Anthony Davis, I do think you want to stick Draymond on him defensively for as much as you can. You can maybe get away with hiding a big man on somebody else. If the Pelicans have a lineup out there with an offensive non-entity um, maybe steal some minutes when Solomon Hill is on the floor or something. But I think the Warriors will go much smaller in this series to kind of match up with a, a five-out offense that features, um, you know, a all-NBA player at the five. And it'll be interesting to see how much Durant uh, matches up with him. It'll be interesting to see how much Draymond matches up with him. I think you'll see a lot of Davis guarding Durant. Uh, one-on-one if Durant starts, you know, hitting shots and and pouring in points. Steph Curry really is the biggest storyline, though, because it is easy to see um, scenarios in which the Pelicans can win a few games without Curry. With Curry, Warriors are just overwhelmingly talented, but if he's limited or if he's absent for a few games, it'll it'll be quite interesting. I've heard that he's moved up the timetable for, for his return, I saw earlier today that he could be back for game two. I saw more recently that he could be back for game one, but he'll be facing some pretty fierce defense from Rajon Rondo, Drew Holiday, and Etwan Moore when he gets back. Yeah, I mean, even that they're potentially pushing up his return, which could be a little risky when you're you're talking about trying to get Curry through the playoffs healthy. Uh, that, that tells you a lot about how much they potentially respect this matchup because... If he's not out there, I mean, like, like you said, they uh, the Pelicans get to put Anthony Davis on on Kevin Durant and just leave that like it is. They can probably put Drew Holiday on Clay Thompson, leave that like it is, and then let the rest of the matchup shake out how they will um, and be in pretty good shape defensively. Once you add in Curry and you have to start either switching or worrying about matchups, uh, it it just it just totally changes the equation. So Curry's return. Um, both when it happens and how effective he is uh, compared to normal when he comes back. Uh, maybe the determining factor in what, what could be a much closer series than a lot of people expect because, I mean, Anthony Davis is a superstar. Uh, he's just been stuck on mediocre to bad teams for most of his career. But um, being able to play small ball center, he, he hasn't necessarily wanted to do it through most of his career. He is even... Quoted as saying, I'm a power forward, and he was very happy for them to bring in Boogie Cousins at the five. But with Boogie out, uh, Davis is really playing the role that I think he's meant to play. 
Um, and it makes it makes the Pelicans a really dangerous team if they can get enough uh, shooting around them. And so far with uh, Holiday and Miritich and even a little bit from Rajon Rondo, we'll see how that keeps up. Uh, they've been able to do that. I think to the point about Davis wanting to play more four, I think that's good in the regular season. I don't think you want to have him taking too much uh, wear and tear, you know, battling on the boards with bigger guys, trying to guard people in the post. Um, even though the league is moving away from that as a whole. But like you said, Davis at the five really unlocks a lot of his potential. And one thing is Drew Holiday is not going to play as well as he did in the Portland series. He's not an all-NBA player. He's going to regress to the mean a little bit. Uh, I think he will get Davis playing you know, consistently well. The one guy I really wonder about is Nikola Miritich, um, midseason acquisition after... Boogie Cousins went down and scored 30 points in game three. He was excellent throughout the series, was not a defensive liability at all, although he will be tested much more harshly against the Warriors. On both ends. If if he has some big games, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, Durant (laughs) Durant and Draymond are are about as terrifying as it gets in terms of two-way players. And especially next to each other. So there's nowhere he can hide. And yeah, if he gets exposed, I think that is a pretty fatal flaw for the Pelicans. I think that they could struggle to score. The Warriors have a good defense when they dial in, it's even better. And yeah, I mean, we can see how much Davis can put on his shoulders, but I'm going to guess Warriors in six. You know, that would, uh, that would be my guess as well. Even with even with Curry, I'm guessing out. I, you know, I know they're hoping for Game One. It seems like that might be kind of pushed in a little bit. Um, but considering they they seem to have a fair amount of optimism around him coming back, I think Warriors and Six is a good pick. If if Curry's absence extends to three or four games, uh, then we could be talking about a series that extends to seven, maybe even has an upset winner. Um, but if Curry's healthy, I just, I just don't see it happening. Yeah, I don't really either, even though I do think there's a very good chance that New Orleans will win one of the first two games in Oakland um, at Gordon Fall Arena. Yes. There in Oakland. So now that we've, uh, we've made it all the way through the Western Conference um, and Eastern Conference, have your uh, finals picks changed at all? Nope. I'm I'm good with Warriors Sixers. I think the Sixers pick has been validated by the results so far. I do think that their lack of experience could be a liability in later rounds, but they a lot of top end talent, a good roster, well coached. Uh, and then the Warriors are the Warriors. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how things play out in a potential series against Houston. I feel fairly confident that that's still going to happen. But if Curry is his normal self, I, I do think the Warriors have enough firepower to get past the Rockets and eventually win their third title in four years. All right. Um, I don't know. How I'm, about you? I'm sticking with you? the Rockets. Are you, uh, but uh, are you feeling I'm, confident in yours? Uh, okay. I'm confident in the Rockets. I, I'm not – well – I, uh, I'm confident at least that the Rockets will make it to the conference finals and give the Warriors a heck of a series. But uh, I'm not so confident that the Cavaliers will be the one to meet the winner of that series anymore. I am now quite a believer in the process. So, uh, yeah. And, you just got to trust the process. The Sixers there. really really made a statement in the first round. And so far the, the Cavaliers have 
also made a statement, but not a particularly good one outside of uh, LeBron being freaking incredible. Alright, as promised, we are going to dig into a bit of a post-mortem for the four teams that have been eliminated so far. We are going to go in order of regular season wins, which means we start with the three seed in the West, the Portland Trailblazers, which finished the season with 49 wins and were ninth in the league in efficiency margin, um, but got swept by the Pelicans, uh, you know... They're very much locked into this Damian Lillard, C.J. McCollum, and friends core because they've got guys locked in for a few years here. Uh, this had to be a an absolutely massive disappointment for them that, that this iteration of the team was healthy um, and got just completely run off the court by the Pelicans for the most part. And by a lower seed at that. Yeah, Portland is in a really tough spot. A couple of years ago, they just decided to give a ton of money away in free agency. I mean, Evan Turner's on a ridiculous deal, but Myers Leonard, he gets, you know, DNPs and he's making uh, eight figures. He's signed for two more years. So even beyond Lillard and McCollum, who are, are both locked in for a while, and there are questions about that fit, uh, it's just they're, they're very much locked in and – they built to get to this point, and they're like, this is what we have. This is what we're running with. But, yeah, ultimately zero playoff wins this season, and they're kind of in that really awkward spot where they have a coach that's good enough to win in the regular season. doesn't seem like they have a roster that's enough to get them very far in the playoffs. Welcome I, to I the don't Pistons think the zone. rosters can – Yeah, well, it's not even – yeah, it's just – they are in that kind of sort of purgatory of very good. I mean, I would trade that for the Pistons in a, in a heartbeat, but it's also kind of the point of, well, you can't get much better, but you're not that good, and you can't try. Yeah, you can't even try to get better. Yeah, I mean, like, the only thing they can really hope for is like a, a breakout from Nurkic or something where he takes his game to the next level. But other than that, they don't even really have that many – young promising players on the roster i mean bo harkless is 24 and has two years left on a deal that is looking not great at the moment um but other than that i mean zach collins was their recent first round pick he's he's not a guy i expect to make a huge difference in their future i mean i i think he'll be all right but i i don't think this is somebody who's changing the the outlook of that franchise much and then the outlook for them is uh there's a pretty hard cap and how far they can go in this western conference and they're pretty much capped out for the next two years yeah i think for collins at the very least he won't make a substantial impact within the next few years i mean he was a one and done pretty young guy pretty raw still portland does have to make a decision if they're going to bring ed davis and nurkic back like you said they don't have a ton of room and 
the biggest thing I think that can kind of break them out of this malaise that they find themselves in now that their season's over, and this has been discussed off and on for for quite a while, is is trading uh, CJ McCollum. I'm not sure exactly what kind of package they could expect in return. I'm sure there would be a market for him. The other team would have to send in some filler probably to make the salaries match to get it back. So I don't know if you want to try to work out a swap to get another star level player from a team that is underachieving or if not a star, then maybe, you know, kind of that next tier beneath it. Cause I think McCollum is probably on the next tier beneath it as well. But yeah. Moving yeah I just don't know if he's going to be that easy to I could move. See. Um, I mean, he's he's owed twenty five million yeah, next year. Not. He's owed he's owed almost thirty million uh, through two thousand twenty one. I mean, that's it's a lot of money for a guy who is a little bit limited. You kind of have to have the right backcourt mate with him. He's probably not going to be your number one option. Uh, I mean, they'd have to find the right trade partner, and then are they going to be able to get value back in return for him instead of? you know, having to sell them off at a deep discount. I I, I just don't know. Um, especially since, you know, they also might be looking to unload some really awful contracts. And usually when you do that, you are sacrificing your return a bit there. Yeah. You got to, you got to package off assets if you're trying to get out of the Myers Leonard deal or something. But how about CJ McCollum for Blake Griffin? Who says no? <laughs> Who says no? Um, I said I, yes. I would take. That. I'd take it too. I'd, I'd say no to caring about it. <laughs> but yeah, okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, yeah, but yeah, I mean, geez, you know, I, I think Portland. Uh, yeah, Portland's just stuck in kind of a rough situation. Um, I mean, it could be worse. They they could have less entertaining players that they've built around, um, and they should be a playoff team. But I I just don't know. Uh, how much more they're going to be than a team that makes it into the middle to end of the Western Conference and has uh, an exit within the first two rounds uh, on a pretty much annual basis. Um, yeah, and it, and it could I be tough to even make it that far if you're locked into you know two more years of Evan Turner. I think there is a lot to be said about having a team that is good and fun in the regular season, and there's a lot to be said about kind of just the whole mindset of, oh, do you have a championship contender? And if you don't, then it's, it's a failure. I think that um, mentality has kind of pervaded the sport a little bit, but if they're winning 50 games in the regular season and then getting drummed out in the first round, I mean, that's, it's not great. You have those months where you get to cheer for a team that's fun and good, but then they fall flat on their faces in the playoffs. Something definitely needs to change. And Terry Stotts is a good coach. Willard and McCollum are good players. It's just, I think, uh, kind of not so great uh, roster construction by the GM there. And if they can't trade McCollum, I wonder if they would ever be open to trading Willard and what kind of return they could get back from there. But yeah, it's tough. I think the bottom line is something probably has to change. They, they probably have to do something kind of drastic here, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, it's either that or you're kind of stuck in this in this middle road. And like you said, I mean, the middle road isn't necessarily awful. Um, Memphis Grizzlies fans had a had a good run with a very fun team. But that team was a little bit better than this this Portland team and, and had a little bit more potential um, to maybe go farther um, than they did. Uh, this one looks like they might... Uh, 
kind of be reaching the end of the road. And, and speaking of that, the, the next team down on this list is San Antonio. And, I mean, they've been so good for so long. They've still got Greg Popovich, but you've you've got this situation with Kawhi Leonard uh, where it certainly seems like something's off between uh, him and the franchise. Uh, you've reached the end of the road, really, with Tony Parker and Manu Ginobili. Uh, Parker's a free agent at this point. Manu will we'll see if he sticks around to play out his contract or if he retires at 40. Um, but either way, he's not going to be making a huge impact going forward. And this is a team that is still, uh, you know, built around LaMarcus Aldridge for the most part. And that, that seems like, you know, even with a couple promising young players around, this this might kind of be the end for the Spurs, at least as, as we know them. To me, it all comes down to Kawhi. I think they were built around LMA for this past season because they had to, but in an ideal world with how they were supposed to be, he would have been a second star to kind of play off of Leonard a little bit. Not an ideal fit there. Just Aldridge's game is just kind of anachronistic in its own way, but if Kawhi comes back healthy next season, if Kawhi wants to stick around long-term, I think the future is great in San Antonio. Um, it's impossible to say that whole situation has been totally bizarre and you wonder how much trust has been lost between Kawhi and the franchise. Um, well, you know, especially the medical evaluation. I mean, he's, he's got one year plus a player option left on his deal. So yes, he's got a decent yes. amount of leverage in terms of if he wants to force a trade, uh, he can kind of threaten to sit again and have the Spurs on the hook for, well, what happens if he just decides to pick up his player option again? Uh, the Spurs could lose. I mean, I, you know, I doubt Kawhi wants to sit for a, a prime year or two, but uh, I also did not expect him to sit in these playoffs when his own team had cleared him. So uh, there's there's clearly something yeah, off there. but supposedly his doctors hadn't cleared him and yeah i was going to mention the possibility of him forcing a trade to a worst case for the spurs is that he publicly tries to force a trade which tanks his value even I mean, at this point ideal world I mean, he's he probably would go about it more subtly uh, oh yeah take it even out. more really but yeah I, you know at his best top two-way player it's impossible to say what's going to happen from here. I could definitely see him forcing his way out. I could definitely see him opting out. I could see him staying. I could see him having a um, first-team All-NBA season next year. It's just a total mystery. And, yeah, kind of going beyond just the the old veterans like Manu Pau and Tony Parker is that he has a not great. Danny Green had a terrible series against Golden State. He, uh, they each can opt out, but if they're back, you're. I mean, the role players aren't great. They don't have a ton of young, promising talent aside from Dejounte Murray. And you got to think that even if Kawhi does come back in a perfect world, that the supporting cast will not be enough to get them close to challenging Golden State or Houston moving forward. So. I don't know what they can do, really. They have a great front office, great coaching. Pop made the most out of a bad situation. Um, they were really good on defense. Uh, but it's just it's hard to say how, um, how things are going to play out. I don't want to say end of an era quite yet because we don't know what Kawhi is going to do. But 
doesn't look positive and if Kawhi does leave then yeah they're gonna they're gonna be hurting a little bit yeah and this, this supported cast I mean if you're relying on a 38 year old Paul Gasol next to Lamarcus Aldridge uh I mean Kawhi better be coming back at full strength if uh if that's going to be the case, because I, I, I do fully expect uh, Danny Green, at the very least, to opt back into his deal. He'd be owed $10 million. Uh, I don't think he's fetching that on the open market at this point, especially coming off the playoff series he just had. Oh. And Rudy Gay would get 8.8 mil. He's another guy who uh, you wonder if he would get that as a free agent uh, heading into his age 32 season. So, uh, yeah, that's... That's not a particularly inspiring supporting cast. It wasn't particularly inspiring this year. They don't have, other than Murray, uh, young guys that you kind of expect to to break through in a way that's going to change the outlook of that team much. So, I don't know. Maybe they can sneak into the end of the playoff, tail end of the playoff seating next year. Maybe they can make it into the middle upper kind of range if Kawhi comes back and is getting along with everybody and progresses like we were kind of expecting him to before this odd season happened. Um, but it's it's just weird to have so much uncertainty surrounding the Spurs. Yeah, and to their credit, I mean, they had the eighth-best efficiency margin in the NBA this year, despite barely having Kawhi for any of the season. But once you get into the playoffs, even if they would have faced a team like Portland or a team like New Orleans or Utah or Oklahoma City, so not one of the big boys, I – I just don't know how you can wring enough offense out of that to yeah. uh, to make it work in there, a, in a there seven were too game many series. exploitable matchups uh, to see the Spurs making much of a run there. Um, and I think Dejounte Murray has a really high ceiling, but if he and Lamarcus Aldridge are your best players, I mean, in a pretty stacked Western Conference, that's just not going to cut it. Yeah. Uh, kind of moving in the opposite direction, uh, Minnesota is a team that's had a, a lot of young talent, um, and then we're able to add Jimmy Butler in there. Um, we got kind of a bizarro uh, Tom Thibodeau team this year uh, that was a very good offensive team and a pretty darn bad defensive team, uh, you know, as we as we alluded to a bit earlier in the podcast. Uh, this is a strange team, um, but certainly a lot of talent. Um locked into a lot of that talent. Um, we're at least getting another year of Jimmy Butler and Jeff Teague around as well. Um, so this is mostly going to be the same team coming back next year. It'll be the final year of Carl Anthony Towns' rookie deal. Um, but uh, it's also the first year that Andrew Wiggins' extension kicks in, and that one is not looking so great right now. Yeah, yeah. His contract really is an albatross. Uh, he's on the hook for five years and $154 million starting next year. Once uh, Towns' max extension uh, kicks in, he will be, um, you know, there won't be much room to operate for the uh, Timberwolves for office, which is Tom Thibodeau. And I think there is uh, potential for both to still be unlocked. I think there's more for Towns. I think Wiggins is more of a known commodity at this point. I do worry about Towns' long-term potential on the defensive end. He isn't a very good defender there, and that can really sink your team if you have a, a liability at the five. But ultimately pretty promising. They're back in the playoffs. Signing Jimmy Butler was huge for the franchise in so many ways. You know, On the floor, he does provide some leadership for them as well. Thibodeau did an okay job of um, complimenting his 
young stars with uh, veteran role players that will have to be changed out over time. But I think you're looking at a team that should be a playoff fixture in the West for uh, the next half decade or so. Yeah, and you take away, you know, you, you assume with some development of some young guys, they won't be relying on, like, Derrick Rose, you know, starting moving forward. They do have a couple of contracts that you wouldn't want on there. I mean, the Wiggins deal is looking like it's, I mean, he'll be a decent player, but they'll definitely be overpaying him. And they've also got Gorgwee Deng on the uh, on the docket for $15 million next year and over $17 million in 2020-21. Um, that is a terrible deal. He's, he's not providing that, that kind of value at all. Um, no. So, uh, yeah, and they've also got, you know, Jeff Teague who can uh, opt into a $19 million play, uh, player option uh, two years from now um, when Jimmy Butler will also be looking at a player option right around that range. So, uh, I don't know. I, I, I like parts of the future of this team, but they're going to have to – Resign Towns, and when they do, they're going to be capped out, and they're going to be capped out with some guys where it may, it may be tough to build the right core around them. But they're they're going to have to work around some deals here that might make it tougher than the breakthrough into the truly elite, which I think is what people were kind of envisioning when when the Wolves brought in Towns and and brought in Butler, and were kind of looking like they could make a run. And the thing is, is their offense is there pretty much. Their offense was fairly comparable to uh, the Warriors efficiency-wise this season, actually. But defense is just such an anchor, and I don't necessarily know how it's going to get much better when Jeff Teague is guarding point guards or shooting guards and Towns is in the paint. Uh, the bench guards were terrible at defense. I, even if Tyus Jones starts soaking up some of Derrick Rose's and Jamal Crawford's minutes, it's not like he can play much defense either. Um, Wiggins, underwhelming on that end throughout his career. You think you would think he has the tools, but just the attentiveness and effort on that end has never really matched his uh, love for taking long twos off the dribble. And, yeah, it, it's, it really comes down to the defense. They're pretty much locked into what they have. They'll make moves at the margins. They do have... You know, a couple good defensive players, um, Butler and fellow starter and former Thibodeau Bull, Taj Gibson can play some defense on that end. But I wonder how much of it is structural. I wonder how much of it comes down to Towns, which, I mean, he's a reason for the great offense. It's just a lot of questions surrounding the defense and still a, a young core and it was their first season playing together with Butler, so figure that they're going to improve the longer that they're together. But um, in any case, they're they're kind of out of the uh, out of the wilderness a little bit and have a promising future moving forward. All right, and finally we get to the Miami Heat, um, who need to move on, but from Hassan Whiteside, but can't. I mean, that's that's the long and short of it, really. Yeah, I mean, I don't really have a whole lot to say about the Heat other than if uh, if Dwayne Wade is going to retire this offseason, then he did turn an admirable uh, playoff series in his final games as a member of the Miami Heat. Uh, it does come down to uh, Whiteside, though, and man, with how bad he looked in the series with Philadelphia I, I don't know how he can move that deal. He's on the hook for a couple seasons and he's making a lot of money. And if you're playing him as much as 
rookie Bam Adebayo when you're in the playoffs, that's a huge problem. I don't know what the market would be for him. I don't know if Portland could somehow be convinced to swapping for McCollum. Um, that would be a, a deal I would make in NBA 2K. But, yeah, I mean, th- this is a yeah, team that's locked side. into eight-figure contracts over the next two seasons with Whiteside, Goran Dragic, James Johnson, Dion Waiters, Kelly Olenek, and Tyler Johnson. That is not a great core, and that is an expensive core. No. Pat Riley lost his touch. I think uh, that's really all that needs to be said about that. I mean, Miami was had a negative efficiency margin this year. They uh, managed to get more wins out of this roster than it should have given them, and they managed to uh, make it into the sixth seed, which kind of hard to believe with um, you know such poor efficiency numbers. But supposed to a good, good defense core. He is a good coach. Good defensive core. They do get the most out of what they have. Um, I think it would be important for them to resign Wayne Ellington, provide some spacing that most of the roster cannot. And yeah, whatever happens with Whiteside, what we'll have to see, I think, man, $25 million for basically a disappearing. He was worse than Adebayo too. He played the same amount, but Adebayo was better on both ends. Yeah. I mean, this is a team that's going to have to get that. Whatever improvement they're going to get is going to be out of, guys like Justice Winslow and Bam Adebayo and that's 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 role stuff yeah. that's not top end stuff I mean and Winslow is a promising player he, he he did show some flashes in the playoffs where if he can get a scoring touch going that, that is a guy who kind of has everything else in place that you want um from an athletic and defensive standpoint um but might be asking yeah, a lot, when, um, and the, I mean, meanwhile, the rest of that. Uh, not only is it that core expensive, um, but it's not exactly a, a forward-thinking NBA core when you're when you're kind of building around some big guys, uh, a couple of big guys in Whiteside and Olenek, and, and then Deion Waiters is your featured scorer, along with Goran Dragic. <laughs> I mean, it's it's just awful roster construction. Yeah. I, you got to give Dion his money, though. It's great. I'm happy for him. <laughs> I mean, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm glad he's getting his yeah. money. I'm glad it's not for a team I root for. It. <laughs> no, exactly. And with Winslow, uh, I mean, if you're counting on a breakout for that guy as your best hope moving forward, you're not in a great spot. He was tied to uh, Stanley Johnson kind of by the hip based on how the draft went. You know, the Pistons took Johnson with Winslow on the board. Winslow went with the next pick, and both of them have been – underwhelming in the same way you know good physical tools decent defenders but just the offense hasn't they haven't put it all together and i mean i think with either one uh you know we'll have to see but it, it, they might have to pay winslow a good amount of money i don't know what his uh financial situation is going to be like when he hits the free agent market but he's yeah, somebody who could command a pretty decent amount of money because he's young for his draft class too but my, Miami, this is a squad that... And he has a lot of potential. Yeah. No, but this is a squad that has $118 million committed to the cap for 2019-2020. Um, but only $40 million committed the year after that. So uh, this is a team that's going to wait a couple of years and then blow the whole thing up is, is my guess. Because I don't think there's any other real path here. I, I mean, I don't really either. Uh, I think that pretty much sums it up Miami 
Unless, not a great uh, spot. The Derek Walton revolution, maybe. Um, but other than that, uh, I'm guessing they're uh, they're pretty much stuck in blow it up mode. Um, unless, I mean, or, I do or know Dwayne that... Wade victory lap mode if he wants to take another one of those. But I think he'd probably prefer either retirement or coming off the bench wherever LeBron's going to be next year. I do think uh, Derek Walton has more rebounding tenacity than Hassan Whiteside. <laughs> so if you if you put him in there, who knows what'll happen? I, I wouldn't argue that, to be honest. I wouldn't argue that at all. Um, but I think that has. Uh, We've pretty much exhausted our outlook of uh, the teams that have exited the playoffs. Um, We will be back again next week to continue discussion of uh, the playoffs as they move completely into the second round. Um, We will have more post-mortems, a little bit more first-round recap, and a lot more looking ahead. So uh, thanks for listening along with us for episode 1.2 of Not, Not Just a Shooter, and we will catch you next week. for listening to Not Just a Shooter brought to you by Gordon Fall of New York Life. Come back next week and learn if somebody's better at giving themselves a nickname than Kevin friggin' Durant. LeBron James, LeBron James, LeBron James, LeBron James, LeBron James.